if you want it here it is come and get it but you better hurry cause it's going fast if you want it here it is come and get it make your mind up Hello, 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 hi, 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 hello, goodbye, my love, who does it good, and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and welcome back to what is a pretty unexpected episode in the roster, actually. If this is your first time joining us, this is going to be a continuation of our look into cover versions of Paul McCartney's songs, aka other artists covering solo Paul McCartney songs. We covered a ridiculous gamut of artists and styles in that first episode, and famous names included Guns N' Roses, Screamin' Jay Hawkins, and Phoebe Snow. And rather surprisingly, we, well, okay, I, actually came across a lot of songs that were pretty damn good and have entered into my own personal canon. So, any covers that we're going to be looking at today are indeed going to have to live up to quite a bit if they're going to make it onto any of my playlists. And, uh, yeah, once again, folks, we're just going to keep it simple here on the podcast. It's just you, me, and another bucket load of cover versions. Recordings for this episode literally started seconds after I uploaded part one. So, think of this as the Beatles getting back into the studio to do Let It Be only two months after releasing the White Album, because... We all know how well that went, right? Secondly, and probably most importantly of all, this episode is giving me a little bit of breathing room whilst I start work on our next proper album review episode, Flowers in the Dirt, part one of which will be our next episode, and part two the week after, with our special guest. You can probably all guess who it's going to be by now, but, oh yeah, incredibly exciting stuff. What's even more exciting is just how many covers on this episode I'm just chomping at the bit to show all of you, especially since 
A large majority of these were originally going to be on last week's insanely over-ambitious episode in those early moments. But yeah, with all that in mind, let us not delay any longer. Well, when I say let us not delay any longer, what I'm actually saying is we need to get onto the housekeeping admin and plugs. But yeah, here we go. Of course, if you want to get in contact with the show, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. For like the first time in ages, uh, we actually don't have any emails to read out this week, folks, so get on that. I want to know what you thought of the Family Way soundtrack. I want to know what you thought of Thrillington. I want to hear some suggestions for future covers episodes. I know there's going to be some obscure finds out there that I'm just not going to find on my own, so please send those in. And as always, folks, I want to know your Paul McCartney story now. It's always hard to kind of describe what I mean by that, but I'm sure you know out there, folks, what your Paul McCartney story is. We've had many people on this show and many emails where people have detailed their own unique tale involving the Big Mac himself. Maybe you play his music, maybe you've met him, maybe you've had some informal contact with him or his company, maybe you've seen one of his gigs or a a live show, maybe you even jumped over the fences of one of his houses and went through his bins. I want to hear all of it, please drop me an email at paulmcconnipod at gmail.com. And hey, even if you just want to say hi or rip to shreds one of my criticisms, that's always fine as well. I love reading out that just as much. Of course, the best way to keep up to date with the podcast and everything going on with me is through our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. It's the kind of central hub for the show where I enjoy interacting with you and posting all sorts of silly stuff. There's the blog, which is www.pormacontypod.wordpress.com. There's going to be another article coming up on there soon where I'm going to be discussing a single album version of Egypt Station. Uh, It's not pretty, folks, and there are going to be some heavy casualties, but I hope you can forgive me for that one. And I'm also writing another one that's going to be up soon as well, where I'm going to be trying to attempt to fix Wings Greatest, the the Greatest Hits compilation album for Wings that featured solo McCartney stuff and nothing from Wildlife or Venus and Mars. So, yeah, hopefully going to be making some much-needed alterations to that one. Check those out very soon at pullmcconneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on YouTube and Facebook. Yes, indeed, our Facebook is back up now. If you were a part of the Facebook group before, please join us again. Simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. As always, folks, the best way you can contribute to the show for free in a very small way that takes no time at all is just to well, hopefully leave a five-star review of the show. I'll obviously leave your honest thoughts, but I'd like to think if you've been listening to the show for a while, you, you might throw a five-star review our way. It really helps boost the show in the ratings and the algorithms and helps spread the love of this little community that we've been growing now. And last but certainly not least, if you want to help support the show in a more direct way, of course, during these troublesome times, everyone's a little bit hard up for cash right now, so I do understand if you can't commit to anything right now. But if you can, if you want to give something back to the show, if you've enjoyed the hundreds of hours of content I've put out there for free with no ads, then please do consider throwing me a couple of dollars a month down the internet by checking out our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash mccartneypod that's patreon.com slash mccartneypod of course I've got nine patrons now which is absolutely mad for me anyway I would never have expected anyone out there to appreciate the show in that way and that bowls me over every day but yeah if you want to see the show grow if you want to help me improve my equipment and possibly guests in the future then please check out our Patreon page down below Thank you very much, folks. Let's crack on with the covers. And our first song today, folks, is the first of selections from what would have been last episode. 
You know, it's almost like songs from Ram being brought over to Red Rose Speedway. And this is also another of Macca's staples that was somehow never a single. This time from his debut album in 1970, Ooh La La, the band is called The Faces, and this is their version of Maybe I'm Amazed. You may not know it, and if you don't know it, I really don't know where you've been. So you should know the tune. Here we go. Don't worry, folks, I know old Rod wasn't talking to you. I know you all recognise that song. Of course, when I say Rod, I'm referring to the lush tones of Rod Stewart, the lead singer of The Faces you just heard there. And once again, we come across a Paul McCartney cover where the main selling point is the fact that we have another one of their all-time great vocalists tackling the material. Taken from their 1971 album Long Player, this cover can be seen as filling in a vital gap in the record sales ecosystem. McCartney had, of course, written this belter of a hit, and yet, due to unknown, possibly let it be, related reasons, he never issued it as the hit single that it clearly would have been. So, some artist, at the behest of an eager record company especially an artist that doesn't write their own tunes, is of course going to come in and release this tune as a single on Paul McCartney's behalf. You know, not because people want to make money and, you know, exploit a hit, but because obviously we needed to hear Faces do this song. Oddly enough, there was actually a studio recorded single of this song that came out prior to the album, but we will get onto that a little bit later. One of the most interesting facts about this cover is how Faces would be able to see firsthand how powerful this song would be with a live audience. Of course, Paul would be doing this for the rest of his career, but isn't it strange that Rod Stewart would get to see that live before Paul? We spoke about this in the last episode, but it seems that a lot of these covers are surreptitious ways for Paul to subtly test how well a song is doing and how well it might do with him later. Though I'm not sure that's entirely the case here, because I don't think Paul McCartney needed to hear Rod Stewart, of all people, to know that maybe I'm Amazed was going to be a banger. You know, I know we've discussed how Paul may not necessarily be the greatest decider of his own material, but yeah, just compare maybe I'm Amazed to the rest of McCartney one. And of course, it stands out as the obvious go-to single for that album. 
And when you have written a song like Maybe I'm Amazed that is just so clearly imbued with that mass appeal, of course you've got to get your money's worth for it. I don't blame Paul at all. But yeah, the fact that it was so contemporaneously current gives the tune an energy that a later cover might lack. Like, one bit that did stick with me was the pause before the solo, and they really they really stretch it out in the most gleeful way. And since most audiences back then didn't really know, maybe I'm amazed as a composition, they all start clapping, and then boom, a pretty perfect recreation of the Maka solo is launched into, which, as you can imagine, must have been like showing fire to a caveman or something. It's definitely Promethean in that sense. Then, of course, you have the big Rod himself in Rod We Trust, Mr. Rod Stewart, who, once he gets going, is allowed to let rip on those choruses with his signature gravelly delivery. Like Paul, he is a natural showman, and yeah, if we're just going to talk about why this song suits him and his voice, then yes, that element of the cover entirely makes sense. And whilst admittedly his voice is the selling point and most enjoyable part of the record, it takes far too long to get there, and his opening vocal is decidedly shaky, and it's all reinforced by what I can only describe as a really janky backing band performance from the rest of the faces here. Um, I'm not going to assume how many times this band has run through this song by the time they get to this recording, but I don't think it was necessarily a rock-solid staple of their set list quite yet. As, even to me, you know, someone who doesn't play an instrument to any real degree of skill can tell that it's incredibly rough around the edges. It's not like Jimi Hendrix hearing Sgt. Pepper for a couple of days and then playing it live in front of the Beatles or anything. And even though, you know, I will admit right now that at the end, it, it is in incredibly epic. And once it's built up to that to that level, then the song is incredibly enjoyable. And of course, with radio being what it was back then, that would be the impression you would be left with, with the song, of course. And perhaps that's the charm for many of you out there. But, you know, the first minute of this song really isn't that enjoyable for me at all. And it, it even gets worse when you hear the studio single that came out prior to the album, which makes it clear as day that... It's not just the live experience that's messing this up. They actually just have a bad fucking arrangement for this song. And we're going to hear a clip of the studio single now to hear what I mean. Yeah, what the hell was that, guys? What the hell was that? Again, even that version finds its footing sometime into the song and it all has that epic ending. But by God, why were they choosing to arrange the song that way? Did they only have access to an early acetate or something? But it's clear that even the safety of the studio environment did improve anything. Um, I really shouldn't have started with this one, really. I'm being far too negative. But none of this matters, does it? It doesn't matter that... It's pretty sloppy. It doesn't matter that the arrangement leaves much to be desired and the fact that Rod's vocal doesn't get interesting for like a whole 90 seconds of music. All that matters is that it's got McCartney's name on it. It's a McCartney production and a McCartney composition. 
and it is going to sell. But hey, the audiences back then seem to like it, and the faces are probably laughing all the way to the bank, so what do I know, eh? And next up, we have a Wings song that I was really hoping that we were going to come across at some point in this covers exploration, and that is Give Ireland Back to the Irish, their very first non-album single from 1971. This time, it is being brought to us by Charlie and the Boys. Take it away. So this is a cover that I really engaged with and I really enjoyed and it's one that I'm just glad that I'm able to show you guys through the medium of this podcast. It's done by an Irish band. I'm just going to say right now that's the coolest thing about it. It's the best way that this protest song could have been taken to the next conceivable level. I know Paul has a little bit of Irish in him and of course Henry McCullough would have been knee deep in this track. But to have it be performed by an all-native Irish folk band is, of course, going to have a greater resonance. And as soon as I heard that this Irish group had changed the lyrics, I knew that this was going to be even more interesting than I could have hoped for. I mean, as you just heard then, they take the line, Great Britain, you are tremendous, and nobody knows like me, the very, very famously lame duck McCartney protest line, and they turn it into... Great Britain, you are intruders, and nobody knows like me. And, yeah, I don't think I need to explain more, more than that. You know, how much more poignancy and significance does the song take now? You know, this is less of a song where Paul is trying to subtly, casually draw your attention to an important issue whilst not coming down too harshly on either side. And instead, this tune is firmly on the side of the Irish. This track has some balls now and it isn't afraid to show them off to the enemy. Like, they're not only protesting England and its place in Ireland more directly than ever, but they're also protesting McCartney's own weak source, half-arsed, limp-wristed stance on the issue by not already being more outspoken himself. They have reclaimed the song for Ireland and for the cause and I think that's really cool. 
They even go so far as to alter the lyrics to be even more threatening, uh, you know, changing them from don't make them have to take it away to don't make us have to take it away, which has so much more weight behind it, doesn't it? You know, instead of some abstract, passive, cautionary warning about a future event, you know, this is a much more proactive threat to those in power. Like, last episode we've seen loads of covers where people have taken an element of the music and the composition and the sounds and focused in on that. And that's incredibly cool and that's an incredibly interesting way to create something new with a cover. But here we have examples of a group taking the concepts and the political stance of a song and expanding upon that instead, which lyrically and poetically I was, I was drawn to straight away. Though, that's not to say that the music itself isn't worth discussion either, because it really is, as, just like the lyrics, the instrumentation and arrangement has been altered to be one that feels much more natively and naturally Irish. This is an actual Irish folk band, so of course that makes sense. And yeah, back when Paul first wrote the song, all protest songs kind of had to be rock songs, and he wanted Wings to be a cool rock band at that point, so duh, it was made as a rock song. But here, even aside from the notion that it's Irish people doing the song in an Irish style, as a form of musical protest in itself, even on the most surface levels, it's still this very enjoyable, earnest, grassroots composition with its full complement of banjo, accordion, acoustic guitar, bass, and wonderful brush strokes on the drums. Which is quite funny because, you know, in spite of the actual sentiment and tone of the song, which is now, you know, quite in your face and direct, the whole thing still feels you know, wonderfully wholesome. So yeah, this was a real winner for me on every single conceivable front. It's an absolute reinvention of the tune. And not only have these guys claimed the song for themselves, but they've claimed the song for a people and a movement, which is just a phenomenal feat. Even though probably only a couple of thousand people in the world have actually heard this cover. But that's not the point. It's fucking brilliant. It's a part of my personal canon now. And I hope it's the same with you. And next up we have a band called Golden Dogs and they're going to be tackling one of my all-time treasured tunes from 1973's Band on the Run. And of all time, really. This is 1985 from Golden Dogs. Good luck, lads.
Man, those golden dogs really are man's best friend, aren't they? There were two puns there, folks. Try and keep up. But yeah, we're only three songs in, and already we have a fantastic example of a cover that so clearly understands what made the original such a successful piece of music in the first place. I've already mentioned in the last episode my personal dichotomy of songs that can be faithful that don't work and songs that are faithful that I think do work. And this was one that succeeded not because it did something really subtle or nuanced, but because it just blatantly and shamelessly reminded me of everything that I loved about the original. And, you know, it was just different enough to get past my own inner cynical censor. But yeah, this was another one that I really quite liked straight away, actually. And even though it would be quite hard for me to not enjoy any version of 1985 done well, any time I tried to approach this song with any degree of cynicism or negativity, I just ended up disagreeing with myself. I just like it. Here's another band that doesn't exactly reinvent the wheel for us or anything, but I was drawn to certain changes here and there, especially the interesting shift in focus to the organ and guitar elements of the song. In fact, the piano is barely in the mix at all until the very end. And for me, it was very refreshing to hear the dun 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 on the organ, like slash synths, rather than being simply the backing. You know, it's almost like a, a, a pro-Linda move. And... Oddly, in some ways, you know, uh, and you could argue this for all of these covers, but what might make some of them work so well is the fact that since you have, re- you know, removed McCartney and his own ego and his own baggage, that in turn might free up certain ideas that may have been stifled before. Of course, I'm not saying the best way to improve a Paul McCartney song is to remove Paul McCartney. Of course, I'm not saying that, folks. I host a Paul McCartney podcast. I love Paul dearly. I'm just saying that Paul doesn't have the monopoly on good ideas. And as we've seen time and time again, many of these artists have brought many good ideas to the table further on down the line. The vocal for this song is also incredibly strong. Admittedly, not as you know, iconic as Paul's, but it's an admirable facsimile of the original, and, you know, it it gives you all that same fist-pumping, hollering, and I really liked how almost Lennon-esque he got during the whole, whoa, I, whoa, I, you know, I'm not sure how much of that was down to effects, but that certainly grabbed my attention. The highlight of this cover is certainly the final two minutes of it, though, because it's here where they really start to get creative with certain elements of the song and reinterpreting them. And it's this final movement of the song that is composed of like almost like cut and paste tape loops of familiar sounds and movements of the original part of the song, except they move them around and repeat them and create this Frankenstein epic of an ending that is so nourishing for fans of the original. I mean, maybe they were able to do it live in the studio, but it certainly sounds like most of it was done in post. Either either way, though, it is this all-encompassing wall of sound that is just immense to listen to. Then there's the solo as well, which is just so fucking badass. And again, it's one of those moments where a cover group just goes, Hey, Paul, that's a nice little bit of rock you've done there, but we'll take it from here, and it helps transcend the material. In summary, this is another competent and entirely satisfactory cover version. You know, these songs exist so that you go and check out the rest of the band's music, and that's exactly what I did. So well done to them, I guess. 
But even if you don't like the rest of this stuff, I still think this cover should still tickle your fancy. Proceeding ever onwards, and we have the first of today's analyses of Let Me Roll It from 1973's Band on the Run, and it's the second in this series now, after we heard Jerry Garcia cover the same track on the last episode. Today, though, we're going to hear it performed by Drake Tungsten, and we're just going to let him roll it. Again, having just done Thrillington last week, I am rather well-versed in alter egos, and it's all rather appropriate, because the singer you just heard there is not called Drake Tungsten at all, but instead, it's a pseudonym for Britt Daniel, who is the lead singer of Spoon, and the guitarist for The Divine Fits. The song itself, as you just heard there, actually came from a self-published 1994 album called Clocking Out Is For Suckers, and it had such a tiny release that it was only available on cassette tape, and only specifically in the Austin, Texas area, presumably because he was, you know, giving it out by hand, or just, you know, to radio stations and stuff like that. I also want to point out that there is a song on that album titled I Can't Believe Kurt Cobain Is Dead, which is an incredibly timely title. Even though I was relatively surprised by the quality of Jerry Garcia's cover of this track, I was still, due to my latent trauma associated with this song, still a little apprehensive about another cover, but hey, I'm still trying to cover as wide a group as possible, and since everyone and their dog has covered this song, I simply had no choice. And again, I really shouldn't have been so negative, because this wasn't that bad a cover, in all fairness. The whole thing is still very recognisably let me roll it, but it has this very lo-fi, laid-back, almost ethereal distance to it that separates itself nicely from that chuggy pub rock style that Paul was interested in at that time. Being that this is the second time we've covered this song, it's actually nice that we actually get to hear the iconic riff for the first time. Not only that, though, this track is made up entirely of guitar, and it's all presented in this very distorted and warbled malaise. And the whole thing just has this great, grungy dirge to it. You know, of course this was on, on, you know, of course this was on an album that references Kurt Cobain in one of its titles. What's even better, though, is that he goes through all these variations of the riff, and he gives those old Macca notes some new life. That was 
unexpectedly stimulating for me. Like, I just didn't expect someone to be able to do... And make me enjoy it any more than I have throughout my entire life. You know, I really thought I'd been there, done that, and got on the t-shirt in that regard. There's also some really cool scratchy acoustic guitar in there as well that I always like. And rather like Garcia, again, in direct opposition to Maka, we've gone for another incredibly sparse arrangement being made up of literally just those two guitars. Then you've got the vocals, which, you know, join the guitars in getting incredibly more weird as the song progresses into this almost long, long, long style of painful wailing. Like, he's almost evoking the pain that Paul may have felt in not being able to roll a joint with John. And, you know, and whilst the track doesn't go as crazy as I was kind of hoping it would, it was still a definite step in a more interesting direction for this massively overplayed song. So yeah, another quite enjoyable track, possibly more of a, a missing link between an interesting song and an enjoyable one. I really enjoyed the change from clean rock to this very dirty, grungy production. It's very early 90s in that sense. But perhaps the kind of apathy of the track is what prevents it from going a little bit, you know, a little more insane for the final push. That being said, the art of making me enjoy Let Me Roll It Again is always an amazing feat in itself, and it makes me never want to be too harsh, so I'm not going to be. Following on, and we come on to Low Key, one of my favourite bands of all time. These were the first guys that I ever saw live with one of my friends, without my parents. That was about eight years ago at the O2 Academy. I went with my friend Ryan, who you can hear me with on several episodes of Pun It. Go check that out. But yeah, it was incredible. They were so fucking good live. So many good memories. The song is Let Em In from Wings at the Speed of Sound, released in 1976. And it is being performed by the one and only Bare Naked Ladies. Someone's knocking at the door. Somebody's ringing a bell. Someone's knocking at the door. Somebody's ringing a bell. Like I said, folks, I love me some Bare Naked Ladies. They are incredible songwriters, and I could totally see myself doing a podcast on them in the future. But this, this was just simply fine. Like, maybe if I didn't know what these guys could do, then perhaps I'd be a little bit more lenient. But like Screamin' Jay Hawkins, I was expecting a little more. That being said, this was still pretty satisfying. I enjoyed it for what it's worth. Uh, this cover was taken from a live performance they did on Sirius XM in 2015. 
Sirius XM, of course, is the Mahusive satellite radio company in the US. And apart from introducing me to Howard Stern and Patrice O'Neill, apparently Sirius XM also does a lot of cool shit like this. And I'm sure any podcast on any artist doing covers will probably be able to find their artist doing a cover just like this on Sirius XM at some point. I think my main issue here has less to do with the performance and probably more to do with the song itself and the choice of song. I mean, I've heard these guys do a load of covers and they do albums of covers and they do loads of covers in their live sets, but this is not a song that would immediately spring to mind as one that they would want to do or one that would be appropriate for them at all. Of course, they all play the parts pretty perfectly. Of course they do, but it hardly captured my imagination. Though, one part that I did want to highlight for what it's worth was the use of the melodica, aka that little uh, keyboard that you blow into to create those wickedly weird, breathy synth sounds. You know, And I thought it was quite cool to give a Wings at the Speed of Sound song a bit of a McCartney 2 spin. I did like that. But yeah, as we've seen before, Paul's songs aren't free from lyrical alteration, and actually this is going to be something we're going to see quite a lot in this episode... And with Letterman here, the Bare Naked Ladies changed the lyrics of the, the family guests that they're letting in, as per the title. And from what I can guess, the names that they sing here are the names of people involved with Sirius XM. Don't, please don't quote me on that. They could easily be referencing their own family and stuff like that, but I couldn't find any more details in the comments section or anything like that. So any American listeners, if you could drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com and let me know, that would be F-A-B. Though, just as a little aside, I did attempt another Google search just before I recorded this episode, and they mention Medicine Woman and Dr. Quinn in the lines there, but those both sound like possible radio personalities to me. Though, there actually was, according to Google, a 1993 movie called Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman... And that could be a reference to that, but it, 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 it can't be. You know, just thinking about that makes me feel all funny all of a sudden. Anyway, folks, yeah, a little bittersweet there, a little disappointed with that one. I, I, you know, I can't bullshit you. Bare Naked Ladies are in my top five bands of all time. I could easily see myself doing a podcast on them in the future. And even though the original lead singer had left the band by this point, uh, a fact that you are constantly reminded of in the comments section, for me, they are, as a unit, as songwriters, stronger than ever. And this is exactly why I, I really wanted more from their take on a solo Macca song. And as enjoyable as it was, I couldn't help but feel incredibly wanting at the end. Right, moving forward, and we're going to go on to a cover from Wings' 1978 album London Town. This time it's With A Little Luck, the song that made me cry at university. And it's being brought to us by Acker Bilk. Fantastic name there. Take it away, Acker.
So, depending on which label and release you go by, this song either appeared on the 1986 release John, Paul and Acker, or on the 1987 album Acker Bilk Plays Lennon and McCartney. And the result is, well, as you heard, it's an oboe rendition of With a Little Look. I'm sure the oboe crowd is going absolutely insane right now. Anyway, going back to our Thrillington episode for a brief moment, we know that McCartney is more than happy to have his innate talent for melodies be highlighted publicly and have that be transposed and recreated lavishly on other people's instrumental covers, whether this be an album or a single, and that's exactly what we just heard there with With A Little Luck. This is, as you quite clearly just heard, a very lavish and lush, poppy, and painfully middle-of-the-road, inoffensive reproduction of the song that we all know and love. I mean, if you are going to choose a song to middle-of-the-roadify even further, then With A Little Look isn't exactly a bad call, because it is one of McCartney's more melodic tunes of the latter era of Wings. But, you know, ten seconds into this track, and you could probably apply this to the entire Ackerbilk collection you know exactly what you're signing up for. As always, none of these songs are completely without merit, and there was one little element that did stand out to me, and that's the incredibly uh, syrupy and cheesy synth solo that is literally... It's so funny. It comes in just towards the end, and for most of you out there, it'll probably be absolute ear poison, but for me, it was... in in the most cheesy, ironic way possible. Um, And it was also a a nice little reference to the arrangement of the Wings original, which, of course, is drenched in that synth sound. So far into this look at covers, we haven't seen many songs that have chosen to actually focus in on the Granny Muzak element of the song and expand upon that. Normally people are trying to shy away from that kind of stuff. But Akka Bilk has obviously noticed that, you know, there is this incredible easy listening following that Paul McCartney and John Lennon have. So many of their songs have been turned into these kind of tracks, as we mentioned in our Thrillington episode, and he is going to make content for those people. I mean, how many stuffy adults back in the day didn't want to listen to actual Beatles records, but they would have been fine listening to Acker Bilk doing it on his oboe? Like, it's funny to think that this might be too uncool for Paul McCartney, but it's such an obvious moneymaker for the both of them, and I totally understand why it exists. Of course, I've got nothing against the oboe. It's a sound that we don't get to hear all that much here on the podcast, so it was a nice change of pace in that regard. But I couldn't help but feel that, you know, even just after one of these songs, you know, I was straying too close to what I call the Adele effect, whereby the music is tolerable for one song, maybe two, but you just can't imagine sitting through a whole album or concert of it. So I'm not sure how much I can really say to swear you either way with this one. Uh, This is easy listening at its peak. I really liked Thrillington and Richard Hewson's kind of jazzy, easy listening take on the material here. This is a much more laid back and even more background type of music. And whilst I can't say that no one is going to like this cover, um, you know, it's certainly not for me. It really isn't. And just to make sure that I've got a full understanding of Acker Bilk, 
I'm going to give him another shot on this podcast. Let's see if he can do something a little bit more interesting. That track, as we know, comes from a whole album of covers. And just like Suburban Skies on the last episode, you know, I am highly unlikely to return to this album in full. So let's hear another one of Ackerbilk's solo McCartney selections in clarinet form. This time, Ackerbilk is going to take on a song that everyone bought in the first place and then subsequently felt embarrassed about and started bashing it. Uh, Of course, that can only mean Ebony and Ivory from 1982's Tug of War. Again, take it away, Acker. So, I had a couple of choices when it came to another solo McCartney song from this album. And whilst I would have liked to have done a comparison uh, with Ackerbilt, Mull of Kintyre and The Brotherhood of Mans from last episode, it just wasn't different enough. Um, So I had to skip that one. And his version of Pipes of Peace was just so hilariously boring that I just couldn't couldn't bring, bring myself to cover it. So that left us with Ebony and Ivory together in perfect harmony and one of the best things about a cover like this is that it can highlight some of the positives of a song that people might not have noticed about the original things that people may have chosen not to notice about the original of course Ebony and Ivory is an extremely divisive song especially when people start talking about the lyrics however with Ackerbilk here we don't need to worry about any of that as this is a cover that is instrumental meaning that there are no cheesy or cloying lyrics to to fuss over and instead we're simply allowed to bask in McCartney's gorgeous melodies as performed by Mr Bilk on his lovely clarinet here because now when a hater is faced with a cover like this uh, you, you know yeah it, it isn't McCartney himself but the criticisms of this song being innately bad all over and that it's a bad song and not just a bit of a cheesy lyric melts away because you're left with a lovely little song here. Once more proving that covers aren't always about adding something new, so much as it might be about carefully selecting something to remove. Now, Ackerbilk's arrangements here are that unexpected based on what you heard from the last song. One arrangement follows the instrumentation, and the other arrangement follows the vocal melodies, or pretty standard stuff. Again, with oboe, of course, taking the centre stage. But try as I might, I, you know, I can't, I can't be all that critical here. Firstly, because, like all of them, it's just a cover. Secondly, though, it's a genre I know nothing about. And finally, you know, I think the dirty, dark secret here is that I just would have no problem with this kind of music if I, you know, if I was there back in the day, because I've been listening to the whole album whilst writing notes for this podcast. <laughs> I have no shame in that. 
I'm not saying it was particularly good, but as background music, it certainly does its job. And to say that this lame little subgenre of music is without redeeming qualities at all and without its own sense of charm would totally be disingenuous of me. So I have no choice but to do the worst thing any critic can do, which is to let you make up your own minds for yourselves. Ugh, I know, right? And for our next song, we will once again be returning to Macca's self-titled debut album from 1970, though this time, rather than being one of the two obvious tracks that clearly should have been singles, we have a good old-fashioned album track. This is Man We Was Lonely, performed by World Party. Let's hear it. first. The album that this song came out on was part of a five-disc release of all of the band's obscure songs and recordings. So basically this was their own anthology project or their own hot hits and cold cuts. It was called Archaeology though, which is rather hilarious for any Ruttles fans out there as that was the name of their own parody of the Beatles anthology project. And amongst all of these tracks we have loads of Beatles covers including Dear Prudence, Fixing a Hole, and Happiness is a Warm Gun, so these guys are definitely Beatle fans. There's no doubt about that. So, this cover somewhat reminds me of uh, 1985 by Golden Dogs that we just heard earlier, in the sense that the main reasons why I like this song is in how similar it is to the original version, though this time that effect is unfortunately dampened this time around, as despite the fact that these guys do do a, a damn good rendition of this song... A huge part of what made Man We Was Lonely so appealing in the first place is the very fact that it isn't a very good recording. I know a lot of people detest the way McCartney 1 was recorded with its very homemade stylings, but for me, that sloppiness is the entire point, that is the enjoyment. And so, if you're going to give one of the rougher McCartney compositions some full, dedicated studio time, then doesn't it make sense to give this cover some new opportunities that the original never had? outside of being a little bit crisper. Like, yeah, you couldn't add more Macca-level songwriting, but that doesn't mean you couldn't have done anything else. And all they do here is clean up the track unnecessarily and give it a sheen that belies what made it enjoyable, at least for me. I mean, yeah, this isn't a bubblegum pop version of the song or anything, but did we really need a full band version of this song? Like, 
so far, this probably feels like one of the most needless covers we've covered today, I'd say. As we've mentioned before, many of the covers in this show seem to be choosing from Paul's more universal songs. But with Man We Were So Lonely, again, what made me fall in love with that track is the fact that it isn't very universal. It's literally about Paul and Linda themselves singing about the post-Beatle breakup situation. Oh, yeah, you, you know, you can apply that, you know, anyone who's lonely with a partner, you know, any two people could listen to this song and possibly empathise with it. And again, that just leaves me with very little to enjoy or indulge in. There's just nothing that stands out to me as to why they're covering this song specifically. Maybe like Suburban Skies on the last episode. Again, they just wanted to do a, a faithful version of the song and their fans, and I've got no problem with that. But... You know, it doesn't mean that it's going to be particularly engaging music outside of, like, a live setting. And, you know, this is going to be one of those situations where it's mostly down to song choice rather than their performance. These guys are clearly very solid musicians and the vocals are very well done. But I'd just rather see it done on another song. Like, if these guys did Ooh You or Junk, I would be far more interested. But sadly, that isn't the case. So, yeah, overall, this was a song that... I did quite like the first time around, or at least I thought I did, but after a few listens, especially in the context of having heard all of these other better covers, the mediocrity of this tune reared its ugly head, and just like when you've solved one of those optical illusions, I cannot see it any other way now. I actually thought I was going to be pretty positive with this one coming into it, folks. I really, I really did. And had this been more of a hot take episode, I probably would have been, but we all know my penchant for overanalyzing this kind of stuff, so... Better look next time, guys, I guess. Next up, and we're going to take another stab at Let Em In from Wings at the Speed of Sound in 76. Only this time, we're going to go back to the world of contemporary covers, as this was also released in 76. Making some mad bank for Paul this time around, we have one of the true masters of psychedelic soul. We have Mr. Billy Paul. Let's hear it.
Well, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? Many of you will already know Billy Paul as the original singer of the timeless number one single, Me and Mrs. Mrs. Jones. But what most of you may not have known is that Billy Paul actually cites the Beatles as being the artist that inspired him to pursue a mainstream sound. He says, I was singing totally jazz back then, but when I heard the Beatles and heard the gospel influence and everything, I just said... I can make jazz with R&B. That transition came when the Beatles came out to America. When I heard the Beatles, that was my turning point. They were like my mentors. So, it only makes sense that he would eventually go on to cover one of the ex-Beatles numbers, even if the timing makes it look like more of a cheap cash cow than it possibly was. Though, right away, you can hear that this is not going to be some copy-and-paste job. And no, I'm not saying the Bare Naked Ladies version was, but without turning this whole review into one big back-and-forth comparison, I think it's fair to say that this is definitely more of an inventive and funky interpretation of Let Em In. 
Like many of these genres we've seen in these episodes, R&B and soul were two other forms of music that McCartney was a fan of, even if he didn't really do them. And so, to have the guy who sang Me and Mrs. Jones cover one of your recent hits would, again, be both a prestigious honour and a lucrative opportunity for Macca. For Billy Paul himself, the album that spawned this single, also titled Let Him In, would be his second highest charting performance ever. That being said, compared to silly love songs, Let Him In didn't sell nearly as well. So it makes sense that they did rush it out in 76 whilst it was still definitely fresh in people's minds. You know, perhaps the Wings original was a little too sombre and low tempo. So perhaps it was indeed worth, you know, giving this song a second stab. Maybe there was something worth tapping into. Though even if there was, Billy Paul certainly didn't find it commercially because, you know, the, the single it didn't exactly fare much better. And I'm not going to call this song a sellout either, because, you know, being good and commercial isn't always mutually exclusive. And here, we have a cover that is so different to the original that it's hard to even compare them at all. Like, all the same notes are there, but the vibe is completely new and fresh, and whilst I don't think I can call it better than Paul's version, it is certainly as enjoyable, but for different reasons. Musically, this song is such a classically uplifting, soulful experience. Like, this is a sound I've always enjoyed, and since Let Em In already had such a large brass section anyway, I knew that this production was always going to be able to do the original justice. It's upbeat, it's funky, it's carefree, and everything just sounds so crisp and precise. The production is gorgeous on this. Of course, it seems like tradition at this point for artists to change the lyrics of Paul's songs to make it something a little more personable to themselves, and what Billy Paul does here was really unexpected. And he expands upon the entire meaning of Let Him In and has turned a song about literally just, you know, opening your house up to people you love and he changes it into this anthem of racial harmony. You know, like, it's not just about letting in your neighbour, but it's letting in your neighbour no matter who they are, you know, their race, creed, ethnicity, anything like that. And, you know, Let Him In was never a throwaway lyric but conversely, it wasn't Eleanor Rigby either. And yet here now, it takes on such a deeper meaning and greater poignancy. Of course, we all know Paul is someone for altering like, the meaning of Blackbird to be a civil rights anthem, but it's still pretty cool that he would let this song just straight up be used for something with a, a little more chutzpah than the average cover. Obviously, Billy Paul himself was known for controversial releases, including the follow-up single to Me and Mrs. Jones, which was called... Am I Black Enough For You? Which is a great title. Though I must point out, the original Let Him In is not without a reference to the civil rights movement, because McCartney shouts out Martin Luther, a.k.a. Martin Luther King, in the original lyrics. And so here, Billy Paul does something quite similar, but he balances it out in roping in Elijah Malcolm. And I did have to double-check this, just in case I didn't make a big error here, but of course, Elijah Malcolm is Malcolm X, you know, the yin to Martin Luther's yang. And whilst you probably could reasonably make an argument that the inclusion of Malcolm X here gives the song a more of a combative stance, like Give Ireland Back to the Irish from earlier, but here I feel like it's simply more, you know, being more inclusive, like, oh, well, McCartney in the original mentioned Martin Luther King, so I should really mention Malcolm X in this one. Billy Paul also gives a shout-out to Paulie Williams and the fact that he is a twin, which is pretty strange, considering that his actual real name is Paul Williams, so... So is it some sort of strange self-shout-out? I don't know. 
We also hear Louis Armstrong as a shout-out as well. But the one that I couldn't find anything on was Bobby Maker. At least that's the name that I could make out. If Bobby Maker is a real person, or if it's like a pseudonym or something, please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. The most exciting part of the song for me, though was the three times that the song slips in audio from famous civil rights speeches. Now, I couldn't find any specific sources for this, so don't quote me here, but I'm going to assume that these speeches are from Malcolm X and Dr. King and other seminal figures in the civil rights movement. But either way, the words and the delivery, when set against Billy Paul's music, really becomes this immensely powerfully emotional moment. It's almost like this proto-rap sample moment, which really caught me off guard by how moving I felt it was. And it manages to make you think in this very self-reflective way and be very, very deep, all without ever losing its groove or musicality. You know, it doesn't feel too political or anything like that. And yet, it's much more anthemic than McCartney ever could have made it. So yeah, to summarise... Billy Paul's version of Let Em In is a fantastic reappropriation of the source material. It manages to completely change everything about the meaning of the song without having to change all that much in terms of musicality. So yeah, a cracking mixture of interesting, inspiring, and generally good music. Up next, and we have a song that I've not been able to get off my daily rotation since I first stumbled across it. This is another one of those tracks that I really wanted to show you back in the first episode, but we're here now, and that's all that matters. This is not a group whose name you would be expecting to hear on this episode, and that's what makes it so much fun for a contrarian like me. This is Mrs. Vanderbilt from 1973's Band on the Run, and it is brought to us by none other than Rapper's Delight. Hit it. artist who was set to perform this track, I was like, Rapper's Delight? The song by the Sugar Hill Gang. And for a brief second, I thought maybe there was a mix-up and I was going to be able to review the Sugar Hill Gang on this podcast, which would be surreally hilarious, but sadly not. And 
It seems that Rappers Delight are some sort of one-off group that was formed purely to record this song, though that seems to be the case for the rest of the album as well, as it's a rather disparate mix. Uh, it was included on an album that I'd actually never heard of before called Music for Linda that was released in 2014 to celebrate the 65th anniversary of the 45 RPM single, which of course was in 1949. It was a five-track CD EP along with a... Beatles Illustrated Lyrics Art 18-month calendar by Alan Aldridge. Uh, It's a fantastic little release. And since there is another tune on that EP that is by Solo Paul, uh, I I thought I'd play it, so stick around to the end of the episode to hear that. Anyway, back to the song in hand, and wasn't that just the coolest thing you've ever fucking heard? Now, I know I'm not the biggest advocate of hip-hop, but as you will know from our Kanye West episode, there are many aspects and artists to hip-hop that do indeed draw me in time and time again. So yeah, you can say I was definitely excited to hear this one unfold for the first time in front of my ears. As per the name of the artist suggests, this song is indeed a classic throwback to old-school late 70s and 80s rap artists like the aforementioned Sugarhill Gang, Grandmaster Flash, or Eric B. and Rakim. And again, this is just a sound that I've always been inexplicably drawn to. And whilst this song does have an incredibly contemporary sound and contemporary production styles, it's obviously got these very retro and old-school, vicarious elements to it that were so easy for me to indulge in. You know, it's a very nostalgic track in that sense. You know, you've got the whole complete sound here with that sweet, fuzzy bass the repetitive drum loops and the stereotypical scratching of the decks. I mean, you would think that the idea of artists recording in 2014 covering a song from 1973 using a star from the late 70s, early 80s might result in a song that might be a little bit muddled and not work sonically. And yet only with a few slight alterations, this track naturally becomes this confident standalone piece. And one of the best parts of this song is that it it isn't just all one thing. It does have other elements in play. And rather than, say, eschewing the guitar riff from the track, which is what I kind of expected if they're going to do a rap version of this song, they actually upgrade the acoustic to this funky-ass electric guitar sound that also delivers these blistering solos towards the end. And again, attaining more of a hard rock sound than anything on the original band on the run. And yet this is supposedly... A rap song. So the fact that it can do that is such a statement. You also have this incredibly powerful rock vocal on the chorus, which was a fantastic counterpoint to the chanting and the rap verses. You know, just the whole thing was excitingly creative in the way that it was put together. And I cannot help but just blot out all of my other senses and just get consumed in this song every time I listen to it. It's an absolute runaway success, and it's definitely one of the strongest covers here. Now, you're probably thinking that I'm being a little bit annoyingly millennial in saying that this might be my favourite cover of the bunch, but, you know, the audaciousness by which they approach this tune truly is a wonder, and I'm so glad it exists. Pressing ever forward, and our next song is the only title track we have on offer here today, and the fourth song total from Wings' 1973 smash hit album, Band on the Run. The performers are from an obscure little outfit called the Foo Fighters, whatever kind of name that is, whoever they are. And yeah, this is their version of Band on the Run. Let's hear it. Let's go.
So this first came out on Radio 1, established 1967, a covers compilation album put out by Radio 1 here in the UK to celebrate the 40th anniversary of their existence. And then this was released again on Medium Rare, which was the Foo Fighters' own compilation of their own cover versions that they put out in 2011 as an exclusive vinyl-only release as part of World Record Day. Woohoo, another vinyl for me to collect from World Record Day. The lead singer of the Foo Fighters, Dave Grohl, as anyone with a YouTube account will know fully well, is a huge Beatle fan and a great spokesperson for them to a new generation. Certainly more so than myself. His favourite song apparently is Hey Bulldog, Like a Boss. He always praises Ringo's innovations like a boss. And he always gets a photo with McCartney whenever he can, just like I would. Grohl would later go on to perform this song in front of McCartney and then President Barack Obama as a part of the McCartney Live at the White House performance in 2010. Can't wait to do a gig review episode on that one. This version of Band on the Run, rather than being broken up into three separate compositions, is essentially one unbroken run of the entire three-part song in the style of just one song, which in turn makes it naturally closer to the Wings Over American version of this song, which again is obviously more akin to the Foo Fighters' natural style, but sadly again it just doesn't work for me. Again, like with Screamin' Jay Hawkins and Bare Naked Ladies, all the artists that I previously liked before I did this episode are all the ones that are kind of letting me down. Like, during the hardish rock second movement, you know, if I ever get out of here, all of that stuff, that works perfectly, it makes sense. But the tenderness of the opening acoustic bit is lost in the first part, and the pub sing-along stuff also is left by the wayside in the third, and instead, the whole thing is just a little samey, like it doesn't, it doesn't progress or change, and it reminds me a little of Shonen Knife and their cover of Jet from the last episode, which is also from the same album, no less. And again, we've just removed all the bells and whistles which made the original so enjoyable. Though, I do like many songs. Like I say, I, I am quite a big fan of the Foo Fighters. I don't particularly listen to their full albums, but their greatest hits are inarguably Titanic. And so I thought I was going to be quite predisposed to like this cover, which I do to a certain degree, but it it's just so bland, which the original isn't. And I will concede that this probably works much better live, and that I'd probably love it if they actually played it, but... The move from three distinct parts to one generic rock song just sucks so much of the soul out of this song for me, regardless of how well they play it or how well Grohl will sing it. Of course, on the Screaming Jay song, the performance are all absolutely terrible, but just like Bare Naked Ladies here, I'm not saying that the Foo Fighters have done a particularly bad job here or anything, but nothing about this cover stands out as memorable at all. You'll probably forget about it by the time we've covered the next song, which, again, is also from Band on the Run. Originally, I had it in my notes that this next song we're going to cover, which is yet another cover of Let Me Roll It from 73's Band on the Run, was actually going to be by a group called The Soft Boys. And as some of you may remember from the first episode, the original notes for these covers were first written donkeys years ago. And so I couldn't actually find an audio file or a YouTube video of a version of Let Me Roll It by anyone called The Soft Boys. So I'm not even sure if that cover really exists or not. But yeah, anyway, it meant I had to go and find another version of Let Me Roll It. 
And instead, this version's gonna be by Big Sugar. Take it away, lads. somewhat starting to feel a little bit sorry for Let Me Roll It, as it does seem like I'm almost going out of my way to find a bad version of it. Almost as some sort of childish response to, to the fact that I actually quite like the last two covers. But yeah, again, we're faced with another version of this song that I actually might find more interesting than the original. Note I also said interesting there, uh, that doesn't always mean good. And yes, once again we have another version of this song that shies away from using the original riff on guitar, almost like it's cursed or something. But yeah, th uh, this song comes fr from a wonderfully titled album that did catch my eye called Hempelation Volume 2 Free the Weed, which was the second compilation album put out to benefit the organisation NORML, which is Normal, a.k.a. the National Organisation for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. It was the sequel to 1995's Hempelation, Freedom is Normal, and both albums were released to raise money and awareness for marijuana legalisation and its lobby, which is something that I personally don't disagree with, and neither would Macca if you think about it. We know Let Me Roll It is already a semi-stoner anthem, but this track really emphasises that point and really drives it home even further to incorporate all kinds of stoner music. We have the super chill-out sativa borderline reggae moments of the song mixed in with the active get-up-and-bang-your-head hard rock indica sections of the song. And, in all fairness, it does balance these two elements well, which actually makes the song more Macca-esque sounding than the original. Another highlight for me, in particular, was the devilishly silly keyboard and synth solo that comes in about halfway through. The execution is excellent. They have a true Professor McCartney, McCartney 2 quality to them. And I do like the fact that they took in the time to throw in one of those random, possibly ill-fitting Macca-esque curveballs. The song also ends with a pretty dope electric guitar solo that just screams classic 90s rock, which was incredibly nostalgic for me. I've had a lot of nostalgia in this episode. And yeah, you know, this is just a song that you light a huge joint to and you sit back and enjoy the vibes. It really did a lot more than I thought it was going to do. And at the end here, I'm, I'm at a loss as to whether I prefer this version or the Drake Tungsten one from earlier. You know, they both take risks with their inventiveness in how they approach this song. And regardless of which one is better, they both still give the original a run for its money. You know, maybe one day on this show I will find a bad cover of this song, but 
Let Me Roll It by Big Sugar is not that cover. Our next song was originally going to be the final song of the last episode, where I was going to compare it to Rod Stewart and the Faces version of the same song. This is going to be a song from McCartney's debut album, self-titled, and it is called Maybe I'm Amazed. Of course, we're going to have another version of this song. It's one of his staples. Though this time we're going to hear a very different voice to Rod's indeed, and that is the voice of Sandy Shaw. Take it away. Je suis étonnée de voir que tout tient à moi. Mon amour est souvent fait de peine. Je suis étonnée quand je me vais près de toi et que sur moi je sens la douceur de ta Now, I was going to come at this whole review from the angle that I originally thought this song came out in 2003, and I was going to contrast it against the kind of rushed cash grab version that The Faces put out, but rather foolishly, I forgot that, as with most compilation albums, once you dig a little bit deeper, you see that, that most of them are taken from many, many sources across their career, and was in fact first released in 1971. So yeah... I refuse to butcher the French language, but roughly translated, the album that this song features on is called As Long As It Lasts. Sandy Shaw sings in French, where, you guessed it, she covers a whole bunch of songs, but sings them all in Francais. Of course, we have already heard the Beatles sing in German, but the reason I like this so much is more or less the same reason why I praised Acker Bilk's version of Ebony and Ivory so much. Again, when you take away people's ability to understand what the singers are necessarily singing about, you are able to listen to and interpret the song in a whole new way. And yes, whilst maybe I'm Amazed is an entirely stronger lyric and more well-thought-out song in terms of, of its structure than Ebony and Ivory, but I don't feel like it's a loss, as A, I know all the words anyway, and B, you are simply able to concentrate on the incredible vocal melody of the song and the sublime performance of the singer. The song can now mean whatever you want it to mean. And you can really listen to it either intently or as background music. You know, again, you're not really concentrating on the words in that way. On top of that, though, to hear such a classic love song be expressed in the language of love by Shaw, you know, without being anything too specific, still makes the whole thing entirely more romantic, even if just on a surface level. Speaking of Shaw, whilst I wish she had have given a wooden performance of this song so I could have made the obvious like a puppet on a string joke, but no, of course she kills it here, and instead of trying to match Macca's powerhouse vocal, she instead achieves the same results with these luscious harmonies instead. And in the verses, you know, her, her delicate tones are so beautiful. 
though right at the end she also switches to this much stronger, aggressive growl that was a great little stinger at the end. So yeah, before we conclude, I do need to say that whilst I do enjoy this song, it is pretty bland in terms of what it does with the actual music and instrumentation and arrangements. You know, they are there to simply prop up this pop vocalist, and it's all lacking, if I'm completely honest. And don't even get me started on the limp-wristed, lame-duck guitar solo that they slap on at the end of this thing. You know, it really does leave much to be desired, and I'm even questioning now whether I'm even going to include it in the little clip at the start of this thing. Basically, this song is exactly what you'd expect. It's a lesser version of the classic, but in French, and sung by uh, an extremely competent, proven female vocalist. So, outside of my specific kind of shallow pleasures in enjoying this song, there isn't all that much there once you start peeling back the layers, but I still like it enough. We're going to move on to our next leading lady now, who, like Paul, has sung one of the very best Bond themes of all time. No, we're not talking about Sam Smith, folks. We're talking about Dame Shirley Bassey and her cover of Silly Love Songs from 1976's Wings at the Speed of Sound. Go on, Shirley. Do not forget, people, Shirley Bassey is the exact type of singer that Paul would regularly be pitching song ideas to. Dame Shirley is a knockout all-time great singer, and so, like so many others of her ilk, she doesn't actually write her own material, and that is where people like Macca come in. And sure, Macca probably would have loved for her to have asked him to pen a new track instead, but it's not difficult to work out why they would have chosen to go with the surefire success massive single, that massive number one single that was Silly Love Songs, though. Coming out just under a year after the original Silly Love Songs was released, this cover was featured on Bassey's 1977 album You Take My Heart Away. And whilst the Wings version of the song certainly had a moderately disco feel and was clearly going for something similar, this version doubles down and becomes a full-on dance floor number. Its intention as a song to dance to is highlighted by the fact that it cuts out the quieter slow-down breakdown segment and instead decides to go on this all-out constant disco beat. Essentially, the whole thing is a less nuanced version of Silly Love Songs, Though, with a good pair of earphones, you can hear that they are at least doing a pretty darn good approximation of Paul's classic bass line. Again, as I mentioned on the last episode, bass players are always on high alert in case Paul is listening. 
Though sadly, since Dame Shirley, you know, and her shtick is mostly being as known as this incredible vocal act, the iconic bassline of this song is sadly brought down in the mix to make way for Shirley to do her thing. However, the issue we come across is the fact that Dame Shirley probably shouldn't have been let loose on this material at all. I just don't think it fits her vocal style, you know? This isn't Monkberry Moon Delight or Morse Moose and the Grey Goose or maybe I'm amazed. This is silly love songs, you know? This is a subtle, reserved, measured vocal performance that showcases Paul's knack for interwoven harmonies and soft tones. And here, that carefully cooked meal has been replaced by burger and fries. You know, this is just so unimaginatively commercial. And as unsuitable as Dame Shirley's vocals are here, in my opinion, the one thing that really let this song down is the lacking in the backing vocalists. Like, the one thing everyone remembers about silly love songs outside of the boom, 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 bass line is the harmonies. Like, everyone loves to do, how can I tell I love you, you about my love. But doing all of that, you know, you can do it in a round like a pirate or something on your own. But here, they don't do any of that, really. They don't attempt any of that complexity. And instead... Add these additional harmonies not found anywhere in the original where, they, where they're going like You know I love you baby, you know I need you baby And they suck, they suck Like if you're going to add vocals to an iconic song like this You better fucking make sure that they are the best thing ever Else you're going to come out the other side looking like a, a complete asshole. Honestly though folks, I really thought I was going to enjoy this one more than I do And I know that in the first draft of my notes here I certainly liked it a lot more than I do now but this cover should serve as a reminder of how you can't just slap any old A-list vocalist onto any old McCartney tune and automatically assume that it's going to be a number one hit success. You know, things just don't work that way. But going on from one of the greats, we're going to go to our final cover today that is brought to us by someone who I'd never heard of before. We will finish things off with the discussion of Heart of the Country, and the mysterious artist goes by the name of Sherpa. Let's listen to it.
on, how can you not be in love with that? Oh, my heart is melting. There actually is little to no information, though, sadly, written in English as to who Sherpa is or what his story was. So do email in at paulmccarneypod at gmail.com if you have any idea who Sherpa is. But from what I've gathered, he must have been a a bit of a one-hit wonder, as the only album I can find of his that isn't a compilation album is the one that this cover was featured on. The official title for this 1974 album, which roughly translated again, comes out as A Long Time Ago. And the song title on this album is called En el Corazón del Campo, which I'm guessing means Heart of the Country. Anyway, onto the song itself. And as you guessed, I'm completely and utterly smitten with this cover. It is just a total joy from start to finish. Like, clearly he loves this song as much as I do, and he expresses that so effortlessly. As I mentioned with Aka Bilk earlier, I do love saying that, Aka Bilk. Macca's silly aside is rarely explored in the covers. And here at the end of the episode, we have one of the, one of the most whimsical, bucolic McCartney songs ever turned into this endearingly kind of goofy folk rock shuffle with a major boost to the rhythm section. Like, we get this wonderfully bouncy bass line that would really make Paul proud and this really kinetic, frenetic drumming that together gives a real kind of urgency to the notion that the singer really is wanting to actively go out there and get to the country. You know, he's a little more frustrated here. It's not like he's Paul writing this from his farm in Scotland. This is more of a a guy trapped in the city. Again, I know this is the fourth time I've brought it up, but I really can't help but think of Thrillington here, as my general love for Ram has recently been supercharged by that easy-listening jazz album, and this song has the same upbeat optimism that you find in both incarnations. And rather astutely, Sherpa has realised what Richard Hewson also spotted, which is that Heart of the Country is simple and pretty Pretty perfect already. So if you want to do a cover of it, don't mess with it. And neither of them do to their own benefit. We've spoken a lot about universality in this episode. And the lyrics to Heart of the Country are indeed so universal that anyone that lives in a country with horse and sheep and slight cramped conditions will be able to appreciate its sentiments. And whilst the lyrics are slightly different here, we've seen a few lyrical changes so far in these covers, this time it's possibly a little more unintentional, likely a language barrier. Um, Because despite the Spanish singer on this Spanish album, the, the lyrics are still sung in English, as you heard. This leads to a rather adorable little mispronunciation of words, which sounds like the most Western imperialist dogmatic thing I've ever said. But yeah, I just love the way he sings, I'm going to tell everywhere I know. Like, rather than tell everyone I know, he's going to tell a place. Like, it still kind of works. It's one of those, the movement you need is on your shoulder kind of happy accidents. And Sherpa's vocals in general are pretty great. You know, he comes across as incredibly charming and appealing from the moment you first hear him. And those little scat jazz bits are so perfectly wholesome. And it embodies the exact kind of silliness I love in a McCartney tune. He also adds these little growl inflections like that to the chorus, which really gives it about as much grit as a song like this could handle. But it's just so slick the way he carries it out. And yeah, finally, as our last cover, folks, I really am chuffed with this one. Sherpa's Heart of the Country has already worked its way into my official internal McCartney canon, and it is easily one of my favourite songs that we have covered on this episode of Covers. 
And there we are, folks. That was our second part into our look at covers of solo McCartney songs. And just as a little aside, I know that at the start of the episode, you can quite clearly hear me talk about how the original recordings for this episode began right after the original. Well, that was right before my MacBook packed up completely. It just went completely kaput. And for the better part of a week, I had to finish it on either my sister's laptop or on my friend's Mac that I could borrow. But hey, the episode is out now. Let's put it all behind us and look forward to the future. Because our next episode, folks, with any luck, will be Flowers in the Dirt Part 1, where I'll be covering everything leading up to the release of that album, the recording, where McCartney was in his life at that time, other things going on in and around the album, the producers, all the band members, and of course Elvis Costello himself. And then after that, I'll very soon be talking to Ken Michaels to record part two of Flowers in the Dirt, where we will go through it song by song. Can't wait to do that, as it is Ken's favourite album. And like I said at the beginning, folks, we're not going to be too deep with this one. This is just us looking at covers. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Again, we've had a nice wide variety of songs here. I hope you've walked away from this episode with at least one song that you'll add to your own personal playlist. As I said, please send me in your own suggestions for covers. I would love more obscure ones that I would have never found on my own. Of course, if you want to get in contact with the show in general, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Find me on the Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Check out our blog, which is www.paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Please leave us a five-star review on whatever app or platform you are using. It really helps out the show. And finally, of course, if you want to help out the show financially in a little more active way, please check out our Patreon link down below. Become a patron of the show. Thank you very much, folks. I'm sure Denny Lane has already been playing us out for some time now, so I'm just going to cut it short and sweet there. Please keep listening to Paul, folks. Keep listening to the show. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry Krishna. Take care. Play us out, Denny. <laughs>